0: And in week three, hard to believe, it's Thanksgiving right around the corner. I'm Yogi Ross, joined by Ted Robinson. It's Ted and Yogi's Pac 12 Adventure, the place, the place if you want legit, in depth Pac 12 college football insight. We got a guest today. Ted, we got a lot to talk about, first and foremost. Welcome back. You were on a trip, you were doing some other sports, you're doing some coverage. How are you feeling?
1: I was, yeah, I was in actually North Carolina. The travel was safe, thank goodness, Pro- protocol was in place, but I had a chance to watch. Uh, A lot of the Saturday games on my flight back, thanks to Delta Airlines, which has TV on the plane. Uh, So I watched virtually the entire Oregon-Washington State game. I saw the end of the USC game. But anyway, I've got to tell you, Yogi, about halftime, so I'm probably flying over Memphis at this point. It's halftime of the Oregon-Washington State game. And I'm sitting there thinking, how about a Colorado-Washington State championship game? Won't that be fun? (laughs) And perfect Oregon, for
0: 2020
1: and then Oregon got their act together in the second half and spoiled that pot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oregon I'll tell you what uh they I, I know if you watch the first half of that game you're like oh, I don't know but if you really take the sound out right don't listen to the broadcast second half of the last two games they have been different teams yeah. and I think it's to be noted most inexperienced and youthful team in the country from a roster standpoint uh Offensive line, obviously nobody came back with any experience. New quarterback, uh, top playmaker, Micah Pittman, out, right? And the leader of their defense was out for the first half in Verone McKinley, who, who I know you know. And I, I just think that they showed that they could be real. That's, that's what I saw in the second half. I mean, they did everything they could do to give it away in the first half.
1: I'm thinking, yo, know, watching, as I said, I, I didn't see as much of their the first game against Stanford, but this game you see a lot. Okay, you see you've got two running backs that can make a difference. And clearly the offensive coordinator makes a difference.
0: Cool.
1: Right. I'm saying yeah. we, we all know what Joe Brady did for LSU last year. You're seeing to me, and I mean the end of the story may be different because the year's different. He doesn't have a full off season yet. Point being that Moorhead and the Oregon offense, and it looks like the marriage of the style of quarterback Tyler Shuck is to that offense is pretty good, doesn't it?
0: Man, what they did with DJ Johnson. Former defensive end, right? Gave him new life playing tight end. Remind you, every other tight end's been injured heading into the season, heading into last weekend. With their back staying fresh, with Tyler in the zone read, run pass off from game, and the passing attack. I mean, remember, Joe Moorhead, his foundation is in the run and shoot. Run and shoot. University of Pittsburgh. That's where he went. Then he went to Akron, and then he was the head coach at Fordham. Run and shoot is his background. So he is a vertical guy. Yeah. And I just, I just love how he calls the games, man. Hit his – I think they're going to be really challenging to stop this year. They've been the most impressive team on offense that I've seen.
1: Yeah. then of course, we had another, another USC-patented end game. <laughs> Heaton slow was making some plays. Receiving core is great. We had – and I watched almost all the Oregon State-Washington game as well, which was good because obviously it was Washington's first game. I hadn't really seen much of Oregon State. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this on the back side of the show. You know, I feel badly because there was a very – just a, a questionable – ball spot on back-to-back plays early in the fourth quarter. So a point in the game that's significant, and it certainly didn't work for Oregon State. It felt badly because, as we're talking now, there's still no clear view whether it was right or wrong, and that in itself is another problem. Uh, But the fact that Oregon State pushed that game right, had a shot. Uh, And then, of course, Cal-UCLA Sunday morning. If Cal can score on two possessions early in the game, they block a punt, have to kick a field goal, and then they intercept a ball at midfield. If they can score on those two drives, right, with Chase Garbers, does that game play out differently and not become the one-sided for UCLA that it becomes? All those are fascinating questions to me.
0: I'm with you. Um, I think for Cal, that was the biggest disappointment was them on offense. Defensively, you knew it was going to be hard just based on the defensive line not practicing with the team and the unit. But you're right, and then for UCLA – if Cal scores those two, are they like, here we go? All right, are they done? They didn't. And, I, and you, you got to give props to Dorian Thompson-Robinson. We talked to him after the game on the Pac-12 Networks, and he, he's, he's got a no-flinch mentality, and he's had to develop it because he hasn't played a ton of football. So I, I look forward to watching them on the Eugene this weekend with clearly a lot on the line. Yeah.
1: And then uh, the story, and we're going to welcome in our guest here, uh, the story right now of Colorado and Stanford. And sadly, one, one team's up as the other team's down. And right now, Colorado is, you know, had two very good wins to start the Carl Durrell era. Stanford has had two tough losses. Uh, and there's no one better to talk about all of football than this guy who knows Stanford so well. Todd Husak was a quarterback for Stanford's Pac 10 championship. See, I got it right Pac 10 championship team. Rose Bowl, starting quarterback in the 1999 season, and uh, then went on and had a run in the NFL, was drafted two spots after Tom Brady in the NFL draft, which I've joked with him about, means that had the New England Patriots had the wisdom to flip those draft picks, we'd be talking about the TH7 program now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be wearing hats, and it's say TH7, and I'd be drinking 17 gallons of IPA here, not that water. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Hussack? That's right. You'd have Tom Brady on your show instead of me. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I'd also I have to say, and, and of course, Todd, for those who may not be ultimately familiar, has spent the last what decade as a Stanford radio broadcaster, knows the program inside out. Uh, he also shares another bomb with Yogi. Yogi, you played for Walt Harris. Todd coached with Walt for a year. So I started thinking, my God, Todd, you had Troy Walters on the Rose Bowl team. If you'd had Yogi as your little Wes Welker dude running the – How cool would that
2: have been? There's no way we would have been – I think we were 11-point dogs against against Wisconsin that year. We would have put up even bigger numbers uh, that year. With that type of talent on offense, you had that to Troy Walters, no stopping us.
1: All right, well, so, Yogi, this is, the, you know, as we said, it's one, one team's up as the other team's down. Colorado's had a heck of a start, you know, two really nice wins um, for Stanford, which has been – and I thought Rod Gilmore, another Stanford guy on ESPN, made a great point during the game Saturday where he said, look, without question, David Shaw's the most successful coach in the history of Stanford football. Now, you can go back to the Pop Warner stuff, and that's hard to compare eras, but given the prominent names that have been Stanford head coaches – in a more modern time. That's a pretty pretty darn complimentary statement for David Shaw. But last year and now the first two games of this year haven't been to that level, Todd. What do you think? Is it is it a is it is it a trend? Is it just now this bizarre 2020?
2: Well I think you go back now it they're four and ten in their last fourteen games. So that's certainly a trend. And I think you, you go back to where Stanford there's there was the golden age of Stanford Cardinal football where it was, it wasn't just bowl games, which when I was there, I went to two bowl games in four years. That was a successful four years at Stanford. That was, it was tough to go to -to back-to-back bowl games, just the turnover and the recruiting, all the challenges. And all of a sudden they're, they're not going to just bowl games. It's Rose Bowls Mm -hmm. and and Fiesta Bowls. And I mean, they were a top five, top 10 team year in and year out and, and putting guys not just into the NFL, but impact players in the NFL year after year after year. Um, and now I think over the last couple of seasons, we've seen a decline, not just in certainly in the performance, but uh, the talent that has come out of Stanford. It's not, they don't have the depth that they once had. Um, and I think there's, so there's some concerning things if you're a Stanford football fan over the last, call it two, three seasons to where, If you were to ask people around the country, what is your identity of what what is your impression of Stanford football's identity? What do you think they are? It's a tough, hard nosed good up front on both sides of the ball team that puts out big time NFL players. And if you go back the last two seasons plus two games, Stanford is 11th in the conference in rushing, 11th in the conference in yards and near the bottom in points per game. Why, why do you think that is, Todd? Well, I think there's a couple things. They had a really good run of not just pretty good tailbacks. They had a really, I mean, it, Christian McCaffrey is one of the best running backs in the history of college football. He put together the literally the most productive college football season in the history of the game. So I think, and then you go back even to Stephon Taylor and Tyler Gaffney and Toby Gerhardt. There was a almost unprecedented string of A-plus tailbacks coupled with a really good offensive line where they not just recruited well, but developed these guys. All right, they took five-star guys who performed like five-star guys, and then they took two-star guys and three-star guys and got them to perform like four-star players. And so I think that combination of just continuity and talent and coaching uh, just created a system where it – repeated itself year after year, much like USC was able to do in the mid-2000s. I mean, Stanford was at that level of talent and coaching and production, and I think it's it's dropped off from the perspective of uh, I think they still have talent offensively. It's just they've turned over some coaching on the offensive staff, and they just haven't been able to find that rhythm of, you know, even with Andrew Luck, Stanford was running first, was a 55% running offense. Um And they've tried to do that. They just haven't been able to outman, overpower defenses. And they've gotten into situations where you go back the last few years, it's a lot of second and twelves. And as you know, that's tough to overcome consistently. And so I think the fundamentals of the offensive system where you look across the country, the team's not just putting up yards, but points and are good in third down and red zone situations, which Stanford has not been. It's yards after the catch. It's success on first down. And those, those are things that have plagued Stanford, and I think, created a situation where they're just not consistently productive enough to stay at the top.
0: An interesting point on running the ball, um, take it for what it is. In nine Pac-12 games this year, the team who's had more rushing yards than the opponent is 8-1. and one. And the one loss was Arizona State against USC, which for all intents and purposes, <laughs> they dominated that game um so so here's my question for you because i am with you on all those things but when i looked at here and you kind of piece them together let's just stay on offense this offensive line last year had to survive you know that i mean they were just trying to just operate but now like i look at walter rouse and i go all the way down the line and i say they kind of look like those some of those horses back in the day i look at the duo in the backfield and some of the freshmen that aren't even playing i say okay they got uh, would I, would I put them up against Stefan Taylor? Maybe like, I don't think they're that far yeah. off of a comp. I think the best receiving core David Shaw's had from a depth standpoint, I mean, John Humphreys isn't even, you know, touching his ceiling as the true freshman. And then of course, Simi me being the leader of that group or one of the leaders of that group. So I, I expected them to not be two and O, but a chance to be two and O. So I look at the year and Dave is not playing. Dave is not practicing. And, and I'm still saying like, it's like they're 0-0 in my mind heading into this week. I'm yeah. curious what, what your thoughts are on, on this team coming off of 4-8, and eight, you know, 4-10 to your point over the last 12 games.
2: Yeah, uh, Davis is talented. I think you look across the board, they're talented offensively, and certainly injuries have been a huge part of why they have not been successful. It's, it's hard to start – I don't even know how many. Uh, there was a point last year where I think they had three true freshmen starting at the offensive line that you don't want to be in that situation. And so that is tough to overcome. I think you go into this season knowing that the defense loses Paulson Debo, an all American, their best player. uh, And they're still banged up. I I think you, at a certain point, you look at the consistency of a high number of injuries and that that's troubling too. It's hard to go into a season where guys are missing. I mean, you look at starters that you have penciled in for day one and, are missing 40, 50, 60 starts over the course of the year out of that group. It's going to be hard to be successful consistently, but then you hope that there's enough depth where guys can come and fill in. But the drop-off has been pretty significant. Um, the, going into this season, you know that the defense is going to have trouble, right? That front seven is depleted. This is young. Um, so let's go in and outscore teams and figure out a way to do that. And to your point, Yogi, they are talented offensively. I really like Austin Jones. I really like Pete. I I love that receiver group. And I think Walter Rouse has a chance to be one of the best offensive linemen in the conference and, and maybe next year. He was he was outstanding as a true freshman last year. And so there's some pieces in place. I like Davis Mills. What's ironic is this is the first year when's the last time Stanford has has had an all conference tight end. I mean, that's that might be Probably. the piece that's missing uh yet they still give me, give me their, uh, you know, their skill position players over eight or nine teams in the conference right now. I, I like our chances. Um, and that's where you look at things like yards after the catch and creating space with your system. And it's hard to, it, like you just don't see Stanford receivers getting open and, and getting, you know, catching the ball in space and running. I mean, I, I remember the Colorado game last year being one of the few plays all season where, Simi Fajoko caught that ball in space and outran everybody and all right, let's, let's do more of that. Let's throw crossing routes and screens and get guys in position um, where they can run away from people because they have the ability to do that. Connor Weddington is a really good player. Uh, Michael Wilson is a really good player. So if they can do that with or whether it's formations, I I think it's, it's interesting. Stanford does very little shifts and motions and things that you can do subtly to create mismatch problems um, on the defensive side. I think Stanford's a dangerous offensive – if I'm a defensive coordinator looking at the skill position players for Stanford, man, how are we going to match up? Mm-hmm. But you get in the flow of the game, and Stanford could do a much better job of creating those
1: mismatch problems that would keep defensive coordinators up at night. Todd, you, you made a great point there a moment ago about identity – And I know Yogi and I did this a lot for recent years. We would talk about the game that would match up the two most physical teams in the conference was Stanford and Utah when they would play. Yeah. So what I want to ask you, because, again, you've been on the inside to see this. Uh, When Harbaugh, the Magic game, when Harbaugh came to Stanford, big thing. He brought in a new strength guy. Shannon Turley was let go probably a year and a half or so ago now. Has that had – an impact on Stanford football? I think you look at the
2: injuries and, you know, Stanford's identity. I think they, Yogi, you go back to the first quarter, first half against Oregon, first quarter really against Oregon, they were they were pushing Oregon's front seven around. I, I liked what I saw. Stanford mixed it up, run and pass, and you, Oregon was off balance. And Stanford could do some things in the run game, which opens up the pass game. And that's really, I think, where Stanford, in their heyday, they could run the ball for six yards a pop, which forced the defense to, all right, let's load up. And we're going to play one-on-one on the outside. And Andrew Luck could pick that defense apart all day. And I think eventually it has to shift where Stanford didn't have the personnel to run the ball effectively on first down. They kept trying to. Eventually, you got to shift to, we're going to throw the ball to open up the run. Um, and I think Stanford's at a point now where I think, they have the, I think they have the offensive personnel. You can dictate what you want to do. And that's where you go out in the first quarter and figure out what's the defense going to do. Are they going to, over, are they going to bring that safety down and force us to throw the ball? And if so, we have the ability to do that. They're going to play two deeps on the ball all day long. And so that's where, Ted, when Stanford went through a run where it was the same five offensive linemen for two years straight. Didn't miss a game. And that was a powerful running game, and you had that fullback who was going to mash. It was like six or seven, whether it was Owen Marisick or you go through that 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 group. They were they were creating some problems for that front seven. Um, they haven't had that consistency or continuity, and they went through a streak where they they just couldn't move the line of scrimmage. Um, and so I think that's where you have to be as as an offensive coordinator or play caller how can I put our players in the best position where we can keep that defense off balance like they did in the first quarter against Oregon and then put our best position players in a situation where we have matchups, where we get our guys in space and if they make that first guy miss, it's a 25 yard play.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I think there's, that's what they have to do now is figure out, right, let's go back, what is their identity? Do we, wanna, do we wanna run the ball? Do we wanna pass the ball? I think this year gives them the opportunity well, they can do both. Let's have our starters. Let's have our first 10 plays on a script, figure out what the defense is going to do, and then attack where we think we can create the best, the best plays. And that's where I think Stanford gets a little bit off track if you go through in-game adjustments and play calling. There are opportunities um, to attack defenses. They need to keep the pedal on the metal because we talked about the defense. Um, I think is going to, they're going to have trouble stopping the high-powered offenses. Just, they're young right? They're young and they're, they're not as deep. So let's figure out ways to score 45 and hope for the best.
0: Well, I, I, I got to bring back a memory because a year ago, we were all in the same place. We called this game. Washington State hosted Stanford. Obviously, they're playing this weekend, 730. I believe it's on FS1. And last year, Davis Mills broke your 21-year-old record of passing yards. I had to bring that up. <laughs> Because you had a great game. That's the only reason why. Uh, but I say that because I, I think you're right. And if I'm playing Washington State, um, I'm doing what Oregon did last week. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep running the football. I'm going to keep running the football. And then is elite. I mean, elite is in between the hashes. Ball placement, anticipation, discernment of decision-making. For somebody who's played the position, as Ted referenced, at a dramatically high level and been around this young man, what's an expectation for him uh, in a game where – You know, he's finally going to have a full week of practice and be able to play, which sounds crazy, but that's the norm for for him in week three.
2: Yeah, well, and he was in Atlanta or Georgia, where he's from, for most of the offseason. He was not working out with everybody because people didn't think there was going to be a season. So you talk about, I mean, you guys know how many reps, like, I go back to my freshman year, and there were two quarterbacks in our program. It was me and Chad Hutchinson, and Chad was playing baseball. I was the only quarterback in all of spring ball. I got, I don't know, 5,000 reps, 10,000 reps, who knows? <laughs> uh, the leaps you make in the off season as a young quarterback and the ability to work with those guys, it's huge. And you take away that opportunity for Davis Mills to get 5,000 reps or however many it is over the course of four or five, six months, and then expect him to come back and then not practice with the team for a week or not even be with the team for a week and then come in and perform. It's hard. I really like Davis Mills. He actually interned with me a couple of years ago, so I got to know him on a personal level. He is an exceptional young man. He's a great kid. He's a very hardworking, humble player. Who uh, there were a couple other guys who worked in our office building from the Stanford football team, and we'd go out to lunch, and they you could tell people like Davis. That's important. Like people like being around him and like working with him. And he's got that kind of presence and attitude where, Hey, I can, I can do this, follow me and we'll, we'll get it done. Now he needs to be there and actually people, you know, it's hard to follow him when he's not there. Um, I think he has a really high level talent. Uh, we saw a couple throws last week where, I mean, that's, that's a, that's an NFL arm and he's, he's got that ability. Uh, if he can balance that with, and he, he's athletic too, you know, the injuries, I, hampered him. I think he's torn his ACL maybe two or three times in his, in his football career. Um, if he can stay healthy, he's got athletic ability. He can run. We've seen him slide. Like he's, he's learning and maturing. Um, but he can make all the throws deep ball, sideline. And that's, you say between the hashes, Stanford does very little outside the hashes other than the fade routes. Right. Like that's, I mean, Stanford doesn't throw out routes or very few corner routes or things where, you know, the slant drag combination, they just don't throw the ball outside the hash very much. So he can make those throws. Um, And that's where if you're the the play caller and you have a quarterback who can throw it sideline to sideline, deep and short, and has touch with that receiver group and force that defense to stretch themselves thin, And that's where you can come back and take advantage of those seams and create matchup problems. If, I like Stanford's fourth wide receiver better than any fourth DB in the conference. There's no question about it. Mm. Exploit that matchup, you know, game five times a game, right? Create that formation or motion or shift where that defense has to choose. And again, if they're going to play two deep safeties, hand it off to Austin Jones uh, and let him run and create. And that's where you go back to the last game for Stanford against Colorado. And they opened up with a lot of two tight end fullback, running back sets that plays into the defense. You're not throwing it to the fullback or the, you know, Fisk at the tight end position. So the defense doesn't have to worry about it. They're going to load up to stop the run, spread the field, get your playmakers in some open space and one-on-one matchups. I mean, the best play for Stanford all season, and even go back to last season has been when they go deep and they have the running back coming out of the backfield, running the option route against the middle linebacker that play has gotten more yards for Stanford than any of the last two years. You can do that with wide receivers and other position players, if you design those plays and uh, create those matchup problems. So th- they have the talent. Um, and again, that's it, you force the defense to be wrong. And you go up the line of scrimmage, too deep, all right, Austin, uh, five on five blocking up front, find the hole. And they, they can gash some teams. So I think, I'd like to see Stanford be more aggressive um, and on the attack over the next, you know,
1: three, four games. All right. Well, that's a pretty good window into why Todd Husak is so darn smart. And Seriously. Man, real estate is one here. You kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Just I think.
2: like the green real estate on the football fields. So yeah, I, like- I know,
1: I'm saying, but Todd has made himself a real estate titan in his, uh, in his <laughs> post-football career, but he's still doing this. And Todd, thanks, man. I appreciate you doing that. I knew there's been a lot of national interest in, in where Stanford football is right now. I've heard that people talking about it, so. It was a good, uh, good opportunity to have you come on. Well, my,
2: my pleasure and Yogi, I, I think we talked about it. My first game ever with Ted. So Ted, I don't even know if you remember this. I, I don't know what I'm doing. They, they're like, Hey, do you want to work the game? And sure. Like, I'd love to, I, I, on TV. And so I go, it's my first game ever. I got my notes and I'm ready. Like I, and I get there three hours prior and I'm geared up and there's no Ted and he kind of pops his head in maybe an hour before, and hey, Todd, good to see you. Like, I'm gonna go you know, talk to some coaches and we'll figure it out. Okay, and I'm just watching my notes, watching the game, and um, okay, I'm, I'm ready. It, now it's like five minutes before we're on the air. It's not there. I'm like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I need like some help. Finally, he pops in like 30 seconds before we're on the air. Ted, what are, like, what are we gonna talk about? He's like, don't worry, you'll be great, I'll tee you up. I, Ted, where do I look? Do I look at the camera? I, look at you. I really don't know what I'm doing, please help me. He's like, don't worry, you'll be fine. Three, two, one. And then he's like, we're, we're. and that was it. I'm, and we, we ended up being great, and Ted is such a pro. It was really fun to watch how easy he made his look. And he did, he teed me up with some good questions and I was able to sort of talk like I am now about,
1: you know what, you My know what tailgate game, Todd, you know, what tail, I was at Jesse's tailgate. You know that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Inside folks, <laughs> That's dude, a good point.
1: Todd knows uh, what I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, uh, Ted, that was fun going back and looking how I got started in broadcasting. And I really lucked into it. Uh, and how passionate I was about Stanford football and be able to work with guys like you and Dave Fleming yes, and exactly. uh, some amazing people along the way. So very lucky. We'll see what happens in the future. I'm certainly open to doing it, but, um, Reflecting on the last, I've been doing it 14 years, Ted. Our first game was
1: 14 years ago. Yeah, it's exactly 2007, right? Yeah. Yeah. 2007. So. I stopped doing Stanford radio. So you're right. Well, yeah. you are the number one f- broadcast free agent on the Pac-12. <laughs> and, and 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 listen, I am. You you haven't even hired me. I am your agent. Okay. There you go. I'll, I'll, shoot yeah, you I'll give you p- text with my commission. Okay. Just you that. have an
2: open tab at the old pro on me. <laughs> All right, Todd. <laughs>
1: Thanks, guys. Great talking to you. All right. Thank you. So that is Todd Husak. And uh, Yogi, I thought that was great just to get Todd's take on, uh, on where Stanford is. Let's bounce now because we have the other games to talk about. And, and I am uh, – as Todd was talking about Davis Mills with Stanford and with you, I kept thinking of Grant Gannell and how excited we know Arizona's coaches were last year knowing, all right, Khalil Tate was likely going to move on so that 2020 would be Grant Gannell's year. And I'm thinking after that first – to watch Arizona play Saturday, this past Saturday, to watch Ganell, to watch the guy you were talking about and hyping Brightwell, all of a sudden that's the most optimistic, I think, since someone's been there that you have to feel about Arizona football.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, by, by far. It was, it was really fun to watch for me. Uh, what well, You and I have talked about ad nauseum, which is PACE, plays after critical errors. That's my uh, acronym for that. There was a pick on the first possession – doesn't flinch, leads them on a game-winning drive, at least what we perceive to be. I think it was 134 left in the game, and you're thinking, "Oh my God!" The legend of Grant Knell just just happened, and of course they lose in dramatic fashion. But he's he he proved to be the recruit that Arizona wanted him to be. He clearly went to work in the off season, and now he's going to get tested again. Right, going up to UW, this is the best secondary in the conference, and it ain't close. In my opinion, at least through two games, the way they move in unison, how fast they can. Um, recognize a route combination so for him he's gonna have to be on it and it's probably the game um, there's a lot of fun games this weekend I'm really anticipating his performance in this game more than most
1: all right so that was going to be my. you answered my question I was going to say who are the best DBs in the league this year you say Washington we Utah has always been in that conversation in prior years we know they lost a lot so unfortunately USC's wide receivers and Washington's DBs could only meet if there's a you know if that's a championship game collision but The the USC thing, there's just one thing. They won, and good for them. I mean, they've had two last-minute wins. Slovis has delivered the goods. The wide receivers are terrific. Second week in a row, a short yardage run play, and I'm screaming. This time I'm on an airplane screaming. The same exact play on fourth and short, deep red zone. Keaton Slovis puts the ball in the belly of the running back, unblocked. Guy comes in off the weak side and crashes the play up. I, I gotta. If Keaton Slovis pulls the ball out of the running back's belly, he walks into the end zone around the right side. Is that? Is there no read option for him on that play? I, I don't, don't know. Do I'm it. just watching. i That's why I can't believe it.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know exactly, but to, to, if you look at what they've done in the past, that has not been a huge part of their game. Right. Uh, I imagine it's going to become a part of it because you're right. That that is the game, right? If you can get SC into third and short and feel like you can disrupt the receivers, they haven't proven the ability to dictate terms, right? That's what Ty kind of referenced with with Stanford. And and that is unfortunate because they should be able to. And with their loss of their center last week, uh, you know, expect him to come back this week in Brett Nealon. uh, We'll see. But they have to be able to run the football, in my opinion, especially in this game because this defensive front for Utah is not known, but Mika Tafua will be known. Devin Lloyd will be known. This secondary, they'll have their problems and challenges. So to me, this game might go like it did a couple years ago when I think Utah was ranked third and SC beat them at home and it was jump ball central down the field. But Utah dominate the rest of the game. Like that, that might be the game plan, but that to me is not a game plan to go compete in the CFP. Uh, I just think you have to be better up front. And I think to be fair to the Trojans, when you're not allowed in your weight room until a week before the season, that's just a fact because of L.A. and COVID-19. And your training camp, like everybody else in this conference, um, is uh, you know, not what it traditionally is because of classes and midterms. I just think you're going you're gonna to lose something. And to me, that's what they lost. We didn't get to see their offensive line be what we, we thought they would be. I thought this was the best O-line Clay would have in the last couple of years. Haven't seen it yet. Uh, and they're going to be tested. It'll be their biggest test of the regular season, in my opinion, on Saturday night. And it's going to be cold, it's going to be dark, it's going to be late. It's the latest game they've had since, uh, oh, I think it's like like, the 60s or something like that, or 60 years. Well, first of all, let's pray, I mean, in, in our own
1: way, let's all individually pray that Utah is able to play the game, that they've gotten through this COVID situation, that they can play the game. You're right, it's an 830, which will mean 845 by the time TV lets them kick off. Uh, up there so let's hope that happens but I've got to throw this out Yogi because it was fascinating and and again after the um, Oregon uh, Washington State game was over I was I was watching because there was no late I couldn't see the Oregon State Washington game that was not because that'll be something we get to in a minute it's on a second tier channel we couldn't get it but I'm watching Wisconsin Michigan so uh, you know and, and Paul Christ I know I went to College with his older brother, Rick, was a couple of years behind me in college. So anyway, watching this game. So eventually, puts alls this together. So I reach out to a coach I know who knows the Pac-12 pretty well. And, uh, and he, it's funny because I said I watched USC second week in a row that they couldn't run the ball out of this air raid thing. It was so frustrating. He goes, USC, his take was USC and Michigan are both the same. He said both – are, have gone away from their identity. He said, Michigan needs to go back and be a downhill running, two tight end fullback set, which is what Harbaugh did at, Mi- at Stanford. And it's what Harbaugh did in San Francisco. And it's what Greg Roman, who was with Harbaugh, is doing with the Baltimore Ravens right now, with a great, obviously great quarterback to do it, Lamar Jackson. And he said, it's like watching USC run the air raid. It's just so eerie because it's against your identity. So I'm an identity person. I don't know. Where do you come down on that?
0: Well, I think it's a tough. It's it's a good conversation because I can remember when um, Sark took the job at at SC. He was like, "All right, if we put our athletes in space, we're always going to win." And I think you could say that forever at USC. Go back to Keyshawn Johnson to when I was there with Dwayne Jarrett, or to now with you know the horses they have. I'm on Ross St. Brown. You know the guys. Uh, Their athletes. Are better than every their one receiver is better than everybody's one DB, and their fourth receiver is better than everybody's second DB. I mean, that's just where they are. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's the rub of like, hey, how come we're not scoring easier? Right? And you look back when Clay was more pro style, it felt like every completion for 12 yards was like guttural. It was, oh, finally we converted an out route. So, they were like, oh, let's get it, let's make it easy and move the ball. And I think right now they've, they've done that. Clearly, their numbers are insane. You look at the amount of yards they put up. But it's the dictating terms that they don't have. And my theory on that is the following. When you're an air raid team, your defense practices against an air raid offense. And what does that mean? That means, yes, you still have nine on seven. You still do inside drill. But it's not what it is if your identity, to your point, is pounding the rock. And that could be debated and disagreed with is fine. But I just think at the end of the day, what you do repetitively and with great repetition is, is who you are. So who they are is not dictating terms. So everybody that's frustrated that they're not doing it, don't expect it. It's not this team. It's not what they do. That's not their identity. And I think even Clay Helton. I think he's – I saw it on Twitter, so I don't know if it's exactly true, but I think his quote was, that's not us in terms of getting in the I formation and running QB sneak. Like, they don't do that. They're in the gun. That's their style. So will it blend? Because Graham Harrell is not – only air raid like he's got pro stuff to him and I've sat down at nausea with him he wants to run the football they have run the football with success but to your point it's when we need to end the game in four minute offense can we they haven't proven to be able to do that
1: yeah, there you go that that's point. and I, everything you just outlined makes a ton of sense and I'm with you and I guess where I'm maybe where I'm coming from is the guy who's never been a coach so I pretty admit this but the guy who's watched a lot and listens a lot is, okay, can you do what you just said? At some point, every football team has to be able to line up when everybody in the stadium knows you're going to run and be able to run for a yard, right? Push for a yard. And that's what frustrates, I'm sure every USC fan <laughs> has been frustrated by, by the first two games. And you said it right. It's what, what Washington State couldn't do, except for the one year Alex Grinch had a defense going there. Other than that, you're right. The Cougars never really had a defense that could dictate the terms of a game. All right. I want to uh, do this Washington because everything you just outlined to me, I was fascinated to watch Washington because it, like, like you, we didn't know who the quarterback was going to be. So it turns out to be Dylan Morris, but I'm watching and guess what they did? They huddled. They ran a lot of snaps. I don't have the exact
0: snap count, but a lot of it was under center. 51, 50, oh, 51 times they ran the ball. I don't know how many were under center. So, you no, know
1: I'm saying how many snaps they had some yeah. shotgun, but, yeah. but to me, the majority of the snaps, and I don't have the exact snap count of this, the majority snap counts were under center. And yes, they ran the ball. And they said, guess what? We're going to run the ball. And you know what? We're going to run it again. And we're going to keep running it. And it was the old play repeating thing. Until you stop it, we're going to keep running it. And that, to me, was an interesting window into the first look of Jimmy Lake. And, of course, he has a new um, OC, John Donovan, who with most recent experience had been in the NFL.
0: Yeah, well, I just love the hat that Jimmy Doherty, or not Jimmy Doherty and Jimmy Lake uh, wore this week. Jimmy Doherty's the receiver coach at UCLA. I apologize for that. But it said, run the damn ball on his hat at his press conference. And that's that's what he wants to do, you know. And I remember talking to him this offseason. He said, We have a plan. I've always had a plan when I'm a head coach, and this is the style we're gonna play. It reminded me of when Herm Edwards got to the Pac-Twelve and he started coaching week four. He changed it. All of a sudden you saw a fullback. They're running the football, trying to dictate terms and that is who you dub can be you look at their offensive line I mean they are big dudes I mean they look like a big 10 offensive line they don't have uh freaks at every other position but Puka Nakua's got a chance to be all conference Ty Jones is good enough mm-hmm. right you look at the backs they've got three backs clearly they can play at this level and Dylan he'll settle in right he's not going to hurt you that's who he is so I, I'm excited about them I, I think by the end of the year they close with Oregon Let's pray and hope that everybody's healthy that is going to be an awesome game because that will be strength on strength best defensive front seven by the time will be the ducks in my eyes and the best offensive line and you could argue run game might be uh you up if they keep developing like we would expect so I, i'm i was jacked about it when i saw that fullback i was like this this is going to be fun on a fullback dive in the first drive of the game come on man
1: oregon state was in the game yeah and, uh, and they and i know brian lindgren even admitted it there, there were I was trying to watch Tristan Jebiag, who we saw play in the Civil War game last year. Um, You know, I think they admitted it wasn't his best game. There was some some throws there. Just, again, ball placement wasn't consistent as he would like it to be. But unfortunately, they've got a shot to win that game, or at least take a lead in the fourth quarter. And look, the Pac-12 put out a statement about it. There were back-to-back plays where it looked like Jamar Jefferson had a first down run inside the five. Both times the spot of the ball denied them the first down, third and fourth downs. Off the TV view, it looked to be very shaky. Unfortunately, and this is where, sadly, you know we're in a world of haters and the haters come out there and start ripping. This is about TV. This is not about the Pac-12 conference. The game is on a second tier network of the big broadcast partners. It's COVID. The announcers weren't even there. The announcers were calling the game from a studio in LA. There were minimal cameras. And so we never saw you and I, I'm i sure were screaming the same thing at home. You want to see you're in the studio, get ready for the post game show. You want to see that clear view. There wasn't one. And so it's up to the field officials. It didn't look good for the field officials, but we have no way to ultimately check that. And it's just frustrating because it happens, a, you know, it's not the first quarter, it's the fourth quarter. It's significant. And so I've really felt, and Jonathan Smith, who we know so well, handles it with a great amount of class.
0: Yeah. And you think about, The Beavs, three of their last four losses have been 10 points or less. The one that wasn't, we called it, you know, in the Oregon game last year in their finale. So they have been in tight games, and they haven't won them. So another opportunity for them didn't work. So I'm looking forward to them against Cal. You know, like, how how do they bounce back? How do they operate? Cal is going to come back. We'd expect them to play much better than they did a week ago. And and we'll see. And you're right, Tristan did not have – it was his worst performance of his career. So I'm looking forward to this game based on two teams that desperately needed to win.
1: Yeah. And, if, uh, and so let's, let's circle back and wind up. Is this a step for UCLA, the Sunday morning game? Um, you know, I thought it was obviously great credit to me, to both schools and the conference, to make that happen to begin with, so that Cal can get a game in and not be, you know, unfortunately, not be like Utah was. Um, how much do we judge either team off that game to you?
0: I judge UCLA a lot. I really do. You look at them on defense, and they looked much better than they did a week prior. And they went up – to me, Cal is like legit offense, right? It's not gimmicky by any stretch of the imagination. You have to fit it right. When you go up against a pro-style offense, which is Bill Musgrave and Cal, the run game they had, the play-action game that they tried to utilize, you can't be wrong. If you do, it's explosive. So it may not be spread out a million miles an hour, but you have to be sound against Cal. And UCLA has not always done that, right? They've given up explosive plays. A week prior, we saw that happen against Colorado. So I loved watching, like, Quantrez night, their defensive front, Oso, Digizua. I-, I was impressed by that. Digizua was
1: all over the field.
0: I mean, all he- over, man. And offensively, it's same deal. I mean, this is Chip. You talk to anybody, you covered him with the Niners. When he can get a first down and he can get moving, he's making hard on you. And they have enough guys to be dangerous. That's the thing. They don't have anybody that you would say first-round pick. All dangerous. So this will be a fun one in Eugene, of course, all the drama around that. But I'm, I'm excited. I, I, if this is competitive in the first half, um, it'll be a big win for UCLA because if you can keep it close late, like who knows you know, what magic might happen in Austin. So I'm looking,
1: Yogi, you'll be on probably about 1130, I'm guessing, Saturday night on the yes, actual sir. network post-game show.
0: That's the plan, at least. We'll be yeah, there.
1: Two 730 games. So I'm guessing about 1130. So if you really, if you're listening to us and you're in like, New Hampshire, 230 Sunday morning, you're naming better than a half hour of Yogi. <laughs> Nothing. Or an hour of Yogi, actually, right? It's
0: a full hour, man. Hour it's a full hour. Uh, I'm sure it's replayed a bunch. But, uh, yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate the plug.
1: And we'll, and we'll do this again next week. Five games, let's hope.
0: Let's hope. And in the meantime, uh, check out the newsletter I do. It's on pack-12.com. The link to this podcast is in that newsletter as well. So if people are looking for it, they'll find it there. And uh, happy game day. You know, week three. It's hard to believe.
1: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.